Welcome back to CrimeFiction.fm, where we bring the authors of today's best books directly to you. I'm your host, Stephen Campbell, and I'm here with Joanne Guidocho, the author of an engaging new mystery, A Season for Killing Blondes, which was released this summer. Joanne, welcome. Thank you for having me, Steve. It's my pleasure. We have spent the last five minutes off air having Skype difficulties and you correcting me on the pronunciation of your name. So if I get it wrong at the end, I beg your indulgence here at the beginning. But I'm going to try and get it right. You are forgiven in advance. All right. Tell us about this book. It's, it's an interesting book, and, and we'll, we'll get into it in some detail. It has a great beginning. Uh, there's a lot of elements to it, and we'll get into all of that. But uh, tell us the storyline for A Season for Killing Blondes. Okay. A Season for Killing Blondes is a cozy mystery based in Sudbury, Ontario, a mid-sized community. It's about 250 miles north of Toronto. I grew up in Sudbury, and so did my protagonist, Gilda Greco. Uh, A few months before her 50th birthday, she wins a $19 million lottery. She quits her job, starts traveling, lives it up, and then realizes that she needs more in her life. Now, everyone is a little amazed by this, but she decides to return to her hometown and give back to the community. She wants to get career counseling for everyone, even those who can't afford it. Now, when she goes back, everything goes well. Her family, her relatives help her out. But on the eve of the open house of her new office, they find a dead blonde in one of the dumpsters outside her office, and everything is put on hold. Now, the lead detective on the case is Carlo Fanton, her old high school crush. So there are a few sparks that fly throughout the book. And um, what happens is within the first two weeks after that murder, three more dead blondes are found, and they're all found within hours of having some kind of confrontation with Gilda. (laughs) And of course, everyone starts pointing fingers in her direction, even Carlo. A little upset with all of this, she has the resources and the time, so she conducts her own investigation. And that's really the main storyline of the book. Gilda conducting her own investigation and solving the crime. And, of course, that's a major component of every cozy mystery. There's some sort of an amateur sleuth, and there are these unusual reasons in in which they become embroiled in the mystery. And so you've got a good one here. And the idea of—I mean, I love the open to this book, where there's this big party that's going to happen. And I I married into an Italian family, and— Gilda is a part of a, a large Italian family, and I still remember when I met my wife's family for the first time. My family, my immediate family, I had one brother, I have a few cousins, and I met my wife's family, and there were over a hundred people, and I was just blown away. So I was sort of picturing all of that in the beginning of the book where there's this big party that's going on and, and there are these women that are cooking and there's all this food stuff and the, this planning that's been going on forever and then it all goes awry because of the dead blonde in the dumpster. <laughs> that's right. This, the book itself, there, there's a lot of Italian family type things. There's an interesting component because Gilda is a non-foodie, but there's a lot of food in the book. So it, you could you could almost classify this as as almost a, a food type cozy, but with a protagonist who is not a foodie, which is interesting. Actually, that's true because I am also a non foodie, <laughs> and um, I would I like to say that Gilda is seventy percent of me. I fashioned her character after my own. One of the main exceptions is she won the lottery. I'm still buying tickets. <laughs> but all those recipes that I've included in the book come from my mother's kitchen. 
And uh, believe it or not, I've made all of them. And oh, really? Those, yes, I have. See, growing up Italian, we all had to cook and bake. Uh, I don't think in, you know, growing up years ago, 30, 40 years ago, my mother would not have thought, you know, would have been horrified to say, oh, you're a not, you can't tell people you're a non-foodie, not in an Italian house. <laughs> so I learned how to cook and bake, but it's not something I enjoy doing. And there's a, early on in the book, there's, there's this party and they can't just have pastries. They have to be super duper fancy, fancy pastries that are shipped in. That, are they actually imported from Italy? Uh, that, you know, that is based on a true event. One of my friends here in Guelph, when she had a christening, she ordered pastries from southern Italy. <laughs> I don't know how much they cost, but I know my mother told me that it could be easily be 50 euros to bring a small box. Now, in this book, they, ordered, they ended up getting a, a bill for 3,000 euros. <laughs> well, if you can imagine, if you're ordering food for 200 people and they're shipping... And the exchange, so it is. It's it's frightening to see how much you end up spending. But that is a common thing with some Italians. If they really want to impress, they will order from an Italian bakery in Italy. Well, that that is impressive, and I was stunned when I saw that number in the book, uh, the amount of money that they'd spent, and I thought, oh, no one would ever do that. And so I'm glad I'm glad well, to hear that uh, that it, it happens all the time. Oh, so, now maybe not three thousand euros, but I've heard of people spending enormous amounts for small boxes of stuffed figs and other delicacies. All right, now this this character character, and and these characters in the book, this is this seems like it's a setup for a series. Is that a true statement? That is correct. I'm working on the second book, and I have ideas for the third. Okay. And you have written some other books in the past that are not mysteries, or if, if they're mysteries, they're sort of a different kind of mystery. Can you describe, uh, there's one series in particular that I think involves mermaids? Yes, I've uh, written, I'm writing books about um, middle-aged ex-mermaids, which is everyone, <laughs> everyone laughs when I now talk what, about it. What, what genre do you put that into? Is, is, is there a middle-aged, it's not like there's a YA mermaid group and then a middle-aged mermaid well, group, I bet. Well, that's part of the dilemma, because when I first started to send out the book, I was calling it urban fantasy. And uh -huh. one of the agents corrected me. She said, this is not urban fantasy. She said it was contemporary women's literature with fantasy elements. Now, that's a mouthful. Oh, yes. And then when I finally got uh, a publisher, my publisher classified it as paranormal romance. But that's still not right because a lot of people expect to be reading about werewolves and, dra and all sorts of dark creatures. Mm -hmm. And this is light fiction. Well, I, I've come up with something that's not out there, but I like to call it fantasy henlet. <laughs> Instead well, of chicklet, like they're older, so they're hens, uh -huh. fantasy henlet. And people laugh when I tell them that. Uh, it's also considered boomer lit, a literature for boomers. Of which I am one. And it must be nice to be writing a mystery series because it's easy to describe. It's a cozy mystery. <laughs> that, yes. That, see, that's one thing about the cozies. It's one genre. Everybody understands. When you, tr when you cross genres, it's difficult to sell it. And people are a little hesitant about buying it because they're saying, well, I don't know if I read that kind of thing. So people are probably thinking, because you've written in these different genres, you're doing, uh, you, you've produced all these books that you have been writing forever. But this is actually a second career for you. So can you tell us a little bit about, about your background and then why you decided, you decided to evolve into uh, writing? Well, I always wanted to write. When I was in high school, I had this dream of working across Canada at different jobs and writing the great Canadian novel. Growing up in an Italian family in the 70s, people weren't doing that. They weren't taking gap years. 
So I decided to be practical. I got a degree in mathematics and I went to teacher's college. I taught for 31 years. And at the end of that, when I retired, I thought, well, I want to do something different with my life. I want to go back to that dream I had when I was 17 and 18 years of age. And I decided to start writing. I started with nonfiction articles I've written in different newspapers, magazines, and online publications. And then I picked up this cozy. I had actually written the cozy during my cancer year. I'm a cancer survivor. Mm-hmm. And when I was off, I started to write the cozy. And then I took it up again when I retired. For, for most of us, beginning to write a novel later in life is not that easy. Did you find it easy, or, or was it something that you had to sort of throw yourself into the education process for? Well, to be truthful with you, when I was going through my cancer journey, I couldn't read anything but cozy mysteries. I wanted <laughs> okay. something light, entertaining, uh-huh. and I wanted resolution at the end. I read about 50 to 100 of them because I was reading two or three a week, when I was going for treatments, when I was resting, that's all I wanted to read. So halfway through, I thought, well, I can write this. I mean, I, I was familiar with the plot, the storyline. Of course, I had to learn a lot of the writer's craft. But I think I just blindly set out and I wrote a first draft, a first draft that needed many other drafts afterward. But that's the way I am. While I'm very methodical as a teacher, in my writing career, I'm more of a pantster. I like to write by the seat of my pants. I have an idea and I go with it. And then afterward, I go back and I look at all the plot lines. I look at the characters and everything else. Do you ever wish you were a plotter? Well, you know, when I had 31 years of very structured life in the <laughs> classroom, I'm okay with this. I mean, I know some of my friends will plot every single chapter. They have all sorts of um, charts. And mm-hmm. I look at it and I think, oh, my goodness, if I had to do that, I'd go back and teach. No, this is fun because I'm doing it as, and I mean, I don't have, this is not my bread and butter. I have a pension. I can do what I want. In fact, I don't even have to write, but it's something I do. It's my passion. And I'm glad now that I have the opportunity to write. Well, I am completely with you because I, I also write by the seat of my pants and I find myself very often writing myself into a corner. And then I say, oh, I wish I had plotted this out. I should just take the time and do it. And then I decide the next thing I write, I'm going to do this in-depth plotting. And I sit down to do it, and my brain just freezes up. I just can't bring myself to do it because I'm like you. It just sucks all the life out of the process. It becomes almost um, regimented, robotic. And um, not to put down, people who write that way, in fact, I have some friends who can write a novel in 43 days. Yes, it, it, it does lend itself to writing faster, that's for sure. I mean, especially if you take advantage of NaNoWriMo during the month of November and write 50,000 words. You okay, you, you said a mouthful there. So a lot, some, some listeners won't know what that is. So why don't you explain what that is and, and sort of the goal of the process and, and everything? Because that's interesting as we head into November. And, and this show will actually go live in November. So, Okay, NaNoWriMo is National Novel Writing Month. It takes place in November, and people all over the world sign up to write 50,000 words. And I think it's turns, it turns out to be uh, 1,667 words a day. Uh, there are all sorts of groups that you can go on to get support online, on Twitter, Facebook. Some people even meet in their communities, and they support each other. A lot of people have written novels during that month. Now, it's a, fr- a very rough first draft. Mm-hmm. When you're writing that many words, you can't edit. If you have to stop and edit each day, you'll never get it done. A few people have gone on to uh, have these books published, but in most cases it needs a lot of editing. And I would say you'd have to put it aside for a month or two or more 
then go back and do major editing. But if you're looking for to get a burst of creativity, NaNoWriMo will do it for you. Have you ever done NaNoWriMo? No, I um I don't like that. I see again. It's the structure, Steve. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm rebelling against the structure in my retirement. I can see though the people that are probably like big goal setters on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. They they plot out everything that they're going to do for the next year, and then they throw themselves into it on January first. Uh, I can see people like that being drawn to something like this because okay, it's, there's this condensed period. I'm going to work really hard and I'm going to get it done. And I I admire the people that can do it. I've never done it either. No, as I said, I mean, some friends in my circle have done it and they've been very proud. Then I think you get badges at the end. Yes. That sort of thing. So there is a reward. And the idea that November is a very gray month. So it's the ideal time to sort of bury yourself in your home and Mm -hmm. write. And there is, as you mentioned, there are all these groups, and so there's this big community that you're a part of. So while you're hip deep in writing your novel and mostly staring at your computer all day long, when you look up, you're you're a part of this community that's actually trying to do something. And that's that's got to be kind of fun as well. So it's a, it's a neat thing, the whole NaNoWriMo experience. I actually heard an interview with someone once who did the whole 50,000 words in one day. And then oh he then he actually posted the draft. And it was terrible, but it was done. I can't imagine doing 50,000 words in one day. Well, it must have, there must have been so many grammatical spelling errors. Everything, but, yeah. Uh, everything. But, he, but he, the story was there. It gives new meaning to info dump. <laughs> <laughs> and I suspect he had the whole thing plotted out ahead of time, too, so that he was able to do that. Joanne, where can people find A Season for Killing Blondes? Well, it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, iTunes, and the Wild Rose Press website. That's my publisher. Okay. Uh, The indie indie bookstores can order from thewildrosepress.com. Okay, and that's uh, we always encourage people, if, if you're an indie bookstore person, please ask for the book. And uh, now you know the publisher. I will link to the publisher in the show notes, as well as your website, which is? com. Spell that, if you would. <laughs> <laughs> I'll spell J- it. <laughs> J-O-A-N-N-E-G-U-I-D-O. CCIO.com. All right. Some people just don't go look at the show notes, and uh, they would struggle with that, I think. But I will have that in the show notes as well as a link to uh, to your publisher. And I, I thank you so much for being here today. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Lots of fun in spite of the early turmoil. <laughs> it was it made it exciting. Yes, it did. This is Stephen Campbell for CrimeFiction.fm. You can find us on iTunes and on the web at www.CrimeFiction.fm. If you do pop by the website, please sign up for my email list. I send out an email each Friday with a summary of the week's interviews. It's the best way to keep up with what we're doing and to be sure you don't miss out on great new books like A Season for Killing Blondes from Joanne Guaidocho. Did I get it? You got it right. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody.